All right. Good morning. Hey, if you take your uh, take your bulletin and uh, pull out this little this little guy, uh, the one on one through James, and on the heels of what Lois and Abby just shared with us, they, they they opened up about their journey of of mentoring, right? Of of coming alongside each other, one on one, encouraging each other in a very particular way, out of uh, certainly of very particular circumstances. But the truth is, we believe God designed all of us for relationships just like that. Um, I love I love the phrase a bump in the road. All of us have bumps in the road. Some some are higher bumps than other bumps. It doesn't really matter. The point is, every one of us needs somebody to walk alongside uh, with on the journey with Christ. And so this fall, uh, starting October first, we are challenging all of us as a church to take a step with us towards community. Take a step with us, either of being in a community group. Or uh, beginning a one-on-one uh, mentoring-type relationship. And, and here's what we're asking. We're asking, starting today, uh, through the end of the month, that you'd begin with just asking Jesus. That you would ask Jesus to bring someone to your mind. And then to just look ahead of you, uh, look around you, look behind you. And when you think about mentoring opportunities, look for people that you can learn from or invest in or share the journey with. And then just simply ask him, would you like to go through the book of James together with me for eight weeks? Simple. You're not threatening them with, hey, will you be my mentor forever? Will you be my Jedi master? Just say, would you want to go through the book of James with me for eight weeks? And, uh, and then uh, make a commitment and a plan to get together for eight weeks. And uh, we'll provide you with a mentoring question that will just begin be a starting point for a conversation each week and ask you guys to go into it. And we also want this opportunity to be there for students as well, for middle school and high school students. And, uh, and so parents, you're going to be getting communication about that if you are a parent of a middle school or high school student. And some of you in the room are, are God has wired specifically to be an encourager to a high school student or a middle school student. And if, and if God begins to stir that in you, this week, get a hold of Nick Mistrude, our high school pastor, or Carrie Hagley, our middle school pastor. All right? Sound good? You with me? Okay. Uh, well, there's two people in the front row that are highly considering this. The rest of you are just waiting for the sermon to start. So I'll get you by the end, I promise. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son and spirit so that we might be reconciled to you and know you. We thank you for your word uh, that is uh, a light for our path. We thank you for relationships. Uh, God, we we want to uh, live into uh, the way you have designed us, which is in your image, which we find in scripture means that is that we are thoroughly relational because you are relational. So help us this fall to step, empower us, embolden us, give us courage to step further into living this Christian life out in relationship with one another. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so question for the morning. What do we mean when we say God? Like what's the stuff that's rolling around in our minds when we say God? Like who is this being that we are referring to? What is this God's nature Right? How should we think of God? And therefore, what kind of life stems from that and results from that? What kind of responses ought we have to who this God is? 
These are the questions that we're going to be getting into for the next uh, three weeks in this series that we are calling Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What we're going to do as a church is we're going to get our theologian hats on for three weeks. You can do it. The 20th century theologian Karl Barth once remarked that in the, G- the Church of Jesus Christ, there can and should be no non-theologians. Okay. Uh, in other words, every one of us has thoughts about God. You can't get away from it. Even if you don't believe in God, you have a theology. It's an atheology, but it's still a theology. right? Every one of us has thoughts about God. We have a theology. The question is, what informs it? What is, what is uh, the picture that we have of God? What kind of thoughts do we have about him? And what kind of life flows from that? You see, what we assume about God has huge ramifications for every part of our lives. What we think about this being shapes how we live in the day-to-day life. See, if God is a traffic cop to you, right? If your picture of God is traffic cop oriented, if he's out to get you, to catch you red-handed, then you will live an anxious life. You will live a life of strict moralism, You will achieve, and when you don't, you will be depressed. If God is a cosmic teddy bear, if he's happy that you're happy, you will live without reverence or thought of consequence, namely to the people around you. Uh, If God is distant, if he made all of this and just stepped back, if he is distant, then your universe will be cold and lonely. If God is an impersonal force, You will be justified in treating people like things. All that matters is a will to power. You see, what we think about God shapes every dimension of our lives. It has a ripple effect in every direction. And so when we look at the Bible, in particular, the the New Testament witness to Jesus of Nazareth, the result is profound. And it's staggering. You see, the followers of Jesus who take uh, the Bible at face value, assuming two things about it. One, that it has integrity, that is, it says what it means to say, and that it is coherent or cohesive, that is, it fits together and doesn't contradict itself. If you take those things and hold them together, you are left with a profound and mysterious reality that God exists as a trinity, one being Three persons. Now, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Old or New Testaments. It's a word that we think uh, the first person to use it was a guy named Tertullian. uh, And he was one of the church fathers. And it's a word used to summarize what the self-revealing God of the Bible discloses about himself. It's a summary word, a word that signifies that he is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if this is true, if what the Bible affirms about God as being one and three, then it means at the very center of the universe, at the very heart of all existence, there is a community. At the very uh, core of all reality, there is a communion of love. It means that the fabric of all reality is woven in relationship, that love, delight, and joy are the grounds for all existence, not chance. That the universe is not cold, it is not dead, but it is designed with meaning. It's personal, it's relational, and it is a place designed to bring you into the loving embrace of this community. Now, some of you might be thinking, 
this whole thing about God being a trinity is seems totally illogical. How can he be one and three? And how can those things exist simultaneously? I mean, one means one, three means three. Right? And some of you want to reduce that mystery away. And let me encourage you this morning with one just simple truth. If you could reason it, if it could make total sense to you, then that God would be your lesser. He'd be too small for you. If you could reason it out, if you could conceive of him, he'd be smaller than you. He, he'd be of no use to you. He'd be utterly unworthy of worship. He'd be unable to hold you accountable. And he would have no transcendence over you. With some of you, that, that's, that's a great God for you, right? right? Because it puts you in the driver's seat. And that, that's more comfortable. Uh, maybe you might be thinking, is this doctrine of the Trinity even necessary? Can't we just accept Jesus' teachings about ethics and just follow his example without getting into debates about something so mysterious and hard to understand? Well, you'd be in the company of one of our founding uh, fathers, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, 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 this guy who once remarked that we ought to do away with all the incomprehensible jargon about God being a trinity and just get back to the pure and simple teachings of Jesus. Well, two things. One, we can agree with him that Jesus is the right starting place. Absolutely. Frame your picture around Jesus. Try to clear the cultural baggage that clouds your view of who Jesus is for sure. That's terrific. Here's where he goes instantly sideways. It's actually Jesus's teachings that lead us to conclude that God is triune or trinity. So if you start with Jesus, you got to take him at his word. And if you take him at his word, then what he says about the nature and essence of God is trinitarian. C.S. Lewis once said that anyone can be simple if he doesn't have any facts to bother about. And so the early church, the early church set out to deal with the facts of what Jesus said and did. The early church set out to make sense of their experience of the risen Christ and all that he had taught. And all that he had done. And the result was that the church of Jesus since the middle of the first century has affirmed that God exists as one God in an eternal fellowship of three persons. All eternal, all co-equal, one God, three persons. And so their starting point was Jesus, and this morning our starting point will be Jesus as well. Let's take a look at Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Follow along with me if you have a Bible open there. Let's see. Then the 11 disciples, remember the, the 12 uh, is uh, missing one. Uh, Judas had hung himself at this point. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this passage, Matthew 28, is commonly referred to as the Great Commission, where Jesus sends the disciples in the power and authority uh, of 
of his name, right? And he gives them a mission. Go make disciples, right? All authority in heaven. Well, whose authority is in heaven? God's, right? All authority on earth. Well, who's is that? Well, that's God's. Well, he's talking about all of this authority is his. Like, he's God, right? And what do the, the people who know him best do when they see him? They worship him. They bow down. They worship him. And he readily accepts it, which means he's either worthy of it or he's very naughty indeed, right? And so these, this, this Jesus accepts worship. And then he, after telling them he has been given all authority, and he offers his continuing presence to his followers. He sends them to join him on his kingdom mission. And he tells them the heart of the mission. Here's the heart of the mission. Make disciples. That is, help people become like Jesus and make him known. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptizing is a word that literally means immerse, like plunge under the water. Uh, in this, It's used to describe the symbol of... Uh, uh, showing the relationship that we have. We're plunged, immersed into this relationship with God. Right? And so he says, uh, go baptize, right? Symbolizing this immersion into the name. Here's what's at the heart of the mission. At the heart of the mission, the, at the heart of being a disciple of Jesus is an immersion into the name, singular, and then he lists three persons. Singular, singular name, Son, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, from here on out, God has a new name. You should know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? It, he's always had an existence as three persons, but now it's, ex, it's explicit and it's clear in light of Jesus. One God in three persons. Let me just kind of show you one way that we, uh, we have... Um, a chart that we have to just kind of help highlight the realities that Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, look, the, the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father, right? They're three distinct persons. Jesus prays to the Father. He doesn't pray to himself. He doesn't say, dear Jesus, right? When he prays, who's he praying to? The Father. He's, he's connecting to the Father. And who does he promise that he's going to send so that we'd always be connected to him? He doesn't say, I'm going to go send me. No, he says, I'm going to send the Spirit. Right? But it's as good as could be connected to me because it's my spirit in you. Right? And so there's these three persons and yet the Father's God and the Son's God and the Spirit's God. And God isn't the Son and the Spirit without the Father. Right? He's always three in one. And any teaching that compromises this, these basic affirmations, ends up negating what the Scripture says. It's veering away from what the Scripture says. And when we fail to preserve this beautiful mystery of how God exists as this communion and community of joy and outpouring love, when we fail to preserve that, we end up reducing the gospel. We end up reducing the gospel of its beauty and of its efficacy and we diminish its possibility for the salvation it offers. And so we're invited not, not to explain the Trinity, but to live into it and to preserve it and to be formed by the beauty of what we don't even understand. So we hang on to the mystery and we live into it. And if you are wrestling with this, Buy me coffee this week and we'll hang out and we'll walk from Genesis to the end of Revelation and we'll just have fun exploring the questions about how can this be and how does God reveal himself from the beginning all the way through to Jesus. 
It'll be fun. All right. So this week, here's the given this framework, given the framework that Jesus offers, that God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, and you are to know Him in, in this Trinitarian way, I want to ask the question this morning, what does it mean that God reveals Himself as Father? John's Gospel opens up with these powerful words describing Jesus... And uh, he, he describes Jesus as the personal expression of the Father, the Word, the Logos, the Word of the Father. And he says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so John starts off by saying, Look, we, we wouldn't know God apart from Jesus. Right? We wouldn't know the Father unless the Son made him known. And so this Son, who is himself God, is in communion and intimate relationship with the Father, makes the Father known. Jesus, in other words, reveals the Father. So what does he reveal about the Father? I mean, some of us, if, if we're being really honest, we struggle with the picture of God as a Father. Is that true for you today? Where there's baggage around the term father, period, right? And one of the things that we face when we look at the language of Scripture is that our earthly fathers don't always add up to being a great picture of who Jesus reveals to be the father. And this is an important caveat for us when we read the Bible. We have to be really careful not to take our experience and import it onto the meaning of the biblical authors. Right? First of all, we're 2,000 years late. Right? We're very culturally different. Right? There's a big gap there to just assume our experience is what they were referring to. It's actually a fairly self-centered way of reading a book. Right? And so uh, the other thing that we have to be careful of is when we read the scriptures and we see a metaphor, when we see imagery, when we see something that doesn't quite resonate with us, we have to try to understand the, the imagery there and work toward our experience instead of importing our experience onto the imagery. And so what we see in scripture is that it's not that the father happens to be absent from church in the fall because he's busy watching football like other fathers. It doesn't give you license, guys. You have HDRs. Uh, right? it, it isn't that the father's just mean and impatient or just angry when you don't clean your room. Right? What it means when the Bible talks about God as a father is that there is an experience all of us were designed to have. There is a parent who parents us perfectly, a parent that we are meant to be parented by. Uh, no matter how hard I try as a dad, I've got three kids. I try hard, m- mostly. There are days when I, I want to not try as hard, particularly when they fight with each other. But there, I, I try pretty hard as a dad, and, and it doesn't really stop the fact that I have to repent to my kids regularly. I have to come back to them and say, guys, that's, that wasn't the right way for me to handle that. Okay, And that's, that's because I want them to make a clear differentiation between me as their father and God as their father. That I know that I'm not representing the Heavenly Father all the time as, as well as I should. And so 
in reality, there's this Father that all of us were meant to have, to be embraced by and to embody in how we treat others. That His parenting ways teaches us what it means to be a father or a mother or a parent or a shepherd. We learn from what He's like and adjust our experience to what He's like. One of the things that Jesus reveals about the Father is that the father was always the father. There was a time when I wasn't a father. There was a time when I was just a son and a husband, but I became a father. But our, the, the picture Jesus paints is that in their eternal relationship, the father is always the father. The son's always the son. There was never a time when one of them wasn't. In other words, the father, in his the core of his existence, he delights in loving the other. He delights in giving life. That's who he is. It's what he does. Father isn't his day job where he comes home and kicks back and just becomes regular old God and watches Netflix. No, he's always the father. He's always outgoing in his love. He's always giving life and sustaining life. And so one of, one of the things we need to do is look at Jesus' way of depicting the father. One of his stories uh, that is probably most famous is the, the story of the, para, uh, the prodigal son. Uh, it, it is a story we find in Luke chapter 15. You can turn in your Bibles if you want. Luke chapter 15. Uh, Jesus is telling a story to describe what his salvation and his kingdom is like. And he's describing what the father is like. He begins in Luke 15 verse 11. That there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. In other words, this son comes and confesses to the father, I wish you were dead. Because when does a son get the estate? When the father's dead, right? He says, I don't want you. I want your stuff. And the father acquiesces. The father says, your will be done. Right? And so the son goes, he unsuns himself from the father. He leaves and he squanders his share of the estate. He, he squanders uh, the, the, the father's gift to him. He, he lives a wild life and he, he spends it all in uh, uh, just an absolute downward spiral. And at some point he comes to his senses at some point, he realizes he's come to the end of himself. And he begins to reflect on how he might improve his state. Right? I, I'm sitting here eating pig slop. I'm a servant in a foreign land. And he comes to his sen- senses. Right? He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. All right, and so he comes up with this restitution plan. I'll work back what I lost. And by the way, it would be impossible for this son in a lifetime to come up with and work for what he had squandered. It's out of the realm of possibility, but he still thinks, I'll work for it. I'll earn it. I'll go back as a slave. But before he can unroll his restitution plan, look what the father does in the story. But while he was still a long way off, 
The father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. First of all, you need to know something. This is utterly scandalous. No ancient Near Eastern patriarch of a family would shame himself by burying his legs, picking up his robe and running They would never do this. It's an absolute scandal for the father to run to the son who's rejected him. And so the father embraces him. The father stops him before he can unroll his plan, right? He he interrupts him halfway through his sentence, right? And he says, guys, right, get sandals on his feet. Get that ring on his finger that symbolizes his status as my son. Get the robe around him to cover the shame, right? Kill, kill the calf, get the barbecue going. We're having a party tonight because his son who was once lost is now found. This is the father. This is the father the son reveals. So you want to know what the father's like? Dump your baggage for a second. He's like this. He's like this father who throws all social norms out the window, runs to embrace us before we get to him. He clothes us over our shame. He gives us the status that we did not earn. There's this famous uh, Rembrandt painting, the prodigal son. You can see it. There's the elder brother off in the dark. And there's the father. His arms are wrapped around the son. The son is just, just secure in this moment, isn't he? Just take it in. Just. Of course, the elder brother, he's raging mad. He's, out, he's outside the party. He doesn't want to go in. Uh, he's mad because he's been slaving for the father and he, he stays out of the party because he also loves the father's stuff more than he loves the father. And the response of the father to the elder brother is to go plead with him. Another total disgrace for the patriarch of a family to go plead with a son. Come into the party. In both cases, the sons rejected the father. One by running away and living a wild life. The other by staying put and living a slavish life. Joyless. Where he rejected the father's heart while doing the father's business. You guys, that's every one of us. You can find yourself on one of those pol- on either end of that polarity. And maybe sometimes back and forth. That is the human condition. Both of the sons had rejected the father. And yet the father runs towards the son, pleads with the other. This is the father the son reveals. It reveals something about human nature and divine nature. On one hand, it tells us something about the human heart, that it's bent towards self. It's bent in on itself. It it bends towards idolatry and self-worship and self-importance and selfishness. And that is what the Bible talks about as sin. This Eagle Creek fire has been like all Oregonians have been talking about recently. Because it's gnarly and it's terrible and it's tragic and we've been soaked with ash for a week. What's interesting about it is this giant flame that has brought so much damage. Physical, monetary, emotional. It was just one little act of foolishness. And selfishness, just smoke bomb in the forest, 
A little teenage twerp moment. Could have happened to any of us. This time, it created a wildfire. Just one act of selfishness just spread like wildfire. Consequences that were unforeseen for miles. The Bible's saying this is human nature. We set the world aflame by our inward bent towards sin and selfishness. That, that there are unforeseen consequences and ripple effects of our selfishness. We think our choices affect us, but in reality there is a globe full of people in rebellion against the Father, against His good purposes of love and joy, and the results are flat out hellish. We set the world on fire with our own self-centeredness. But here's the picture Jesus paints. God isn't out to ruin us. God's not out to get us like a traffic cop. He's out to stop the arson, so to speak, but he does it by taking on the terrible guilt and shame on himself so we can be restored. He does this in sending the Son. So the Father and Son suffer together as the Son bears our rebellious consequences. While one act of sin can set the world on fire, so one act of grace, according to Paul in Romans 6, can outdo the effects of sin. That grace trumps our sin. That the mercy and compassion and grace of the Father can also have ripple effects that we would never predict. Setting us right, healing us, and restoring us. And so the language that Jesus uses shows us a Father that's overjoyed to have us back, to have us restored, even though He bears the cost of that restoration. He says, look, you can't come back to me and pay it back. You can't unroll a restitution plan. You can't come back to me and earn my love. He says that the cost is too great, and instead he sends our true elder brother, Jesus, to pay the price for our being welcomed back by the Father on the cross. I want you to see a couple things here. First of all, the Father runs to restore rebels. He runs to restore rebels. And his heart is bent towards compassion and his arms are open. This is the posture of the Father. The action of the Father is that he covers shame and he clothes us with dignity through the gospel. And he changes our identity from rebel to child. That's what's represented in this story that Jesus tells. He not only re-embraces us, but he reestablishes us and gives us a new identity. Just one zoom in on that painting. We are to see ourselves embraced. This is the gospel of Jesus. That the Father pulls us in by the grace of our true elder brother, Jesus. Do you know the heart of the Father for you today? Do you know that he's running after you? That he's running hard after you? That he isn't afraid to be seen with you? That he's not bummed to plead with you? To clothe you and to give you all the rights and privileges and experience of his beloved child? This is the Father today. So how does this come into our lives that's precisely what the Apostle Paul gets at in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Look at, listen to what he says. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, and daughters implied, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So when the time was right, when the fullness of God's plan had come, Jesus was born just like us, in the flesh of a woman under the law to redeem us so we might be adopted. The father runs after rebels to restore him. He also adopts us into his family so we can share in the love he has for his own perfect son. Let me draw out three very practical things for us here. First of all, adoption has to be received from the father. You know, he doesn't just like kidnap us against our will. Belonging to the father is a choice. You see, it's something he accomplishes. There's no naturally born members of the family of God. All are brought in and ushered in by grace. All of us come in through the door of adoption. Not one of us come through earning. It's God's free gift. It's his initiative. It's It's God's joy and delight to bring us in as sons and daughters through what Jesus has done on the cross. And he bears the curse of sin, offering us redemption. It's freely offered to every person on the planet but you still have to receive it. He won't drag you kicking and screaming, most likely. He seemed like he did with Paul, but the rest of us have a choice. All right? We have to receive it. All right? We can't earn, we can't achieve, but we can reject and we can receive. Those are our options with him. Let me just plead with you today. Receive the love of the Father. Receive his running to restore you. Have you received his love through the Son? Have you said yes and allowed him to clothe you and give you a new name and a new status and new joy and all the experience that's meant to be for you as his child? Free from the shame of your past, if you're a younger brother type. Free from the slavish effort, if you're an older brother type. Will you today... Receive what the Father offers freely. You can do it where you are, and you can just tell the person that brought you, or come receive prayer in just a few minutes. We would love to pray for you if that's you today, and you're finding yourself drawn in by the embrace of the Father, and you're saying yes. The second thing I want to make clear from this passage this morning is that adoption is experienced in and through the Spirit. The Spirit comes into our lives so that we can have God as a reality on our hearts. So from the depths of our being, we can cry out, Abba, which is an intimate expression. Not a bad Swedish band. Okay? It's an intimate expression of closeness to a parent who loves us. And the Spirit revolutionizes our lives, turns our loves upside down and reorders our lives as adopted children. It's one thing to assent and to agree. It's another thing to experience. And to be a Christian is not primarily to agree with a set of, of beliefs. It's not primarily to uh, uh, conform to a set of behaviors. It is to be converted deeply in your inner being, to be brought into a family and to experience the love and joy of God. And so, the Spirit is the one who brings the experience of our adoption into our lives. 
He brings the experience into our lives. The Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts, Paul says in Romans 5. He brings the reality of God's fatherliness right into our lives personally. And he also gives us the power to live as sons and daughters. I don't know if any of you have ever tried rowing a boat in a windy, uh, in a, on a windy day. It, it, it stinks, right? You're out there against the wind. You're just you're pushing, you're pulling, and it's terrible, right? You're, you make such little progress. Compare that to dropping the sails down, right? And what happens? You just, right? You go. You go where the wind takes you. And, and, and the words the scriptures uses to describe the spirit in Hebrew and Greek are, are wind. The breath of God. The wind of God. And God says, stop rowing at life. Drop the sails. Partner with me and experience the wind of the spirit and go where I lead. It takes effort, but it's not laborious. It's partnership, but you move. And so the Spirit comes into our lives and we experience our adoption. And finally, the pattern of our lives changes. The pattern of our life changes from slaves to heirs. And so our adoption patterns our lives after the Son, the true heir, the ultimate heir of the kingdom. And Paul certainly describes himself at times as a bond servant, a slave of King Jesus. There is a reality in which we will always serve in some direction, right? We'll be servant slave to sin or to righteousness. But here Paul's saying we're not to live in a slavish way where we're slaves without standing or affection. He says, no, you're children. You, you serve him affectionately knowing that you have a standing as an heir where we share the very standing of Christ himself. Do you know that today? That God looks at you, if you're in Christ, and he says, I see you as if you are just like my son Jesus. You have all his standing. You have all of my favor. It means that if you've received this grace gift of adoption, you have the help of the Spirit who resides in you. And you have standing as his heir. And let me just unpack what that means, and then we'll end in prayer. It means that you relate to God with assurance rather than anxiety. You don't have to just kind of inch your way into God's presence, but you can come to him boldly. You can come to him as father and come to him with bold prayers. And you can reject the accusations of the evil one and you can proclaim the gospel because you're its beneficiary and it is good news to you and it is good news to the whole world. It means you can relate to yourself with a new identity that's rooted in someone else's achievement, Jesus's and not yours, which means boasting goes out the window and so does despair, folks. It means that you can treat the Father's inheritance with reverence. We are the inheritance... The world is his inheritance, and so that means you now take on a new role. When, when you have an inheritance coming, you work to preserve it. You work to make sure it's okay. I mean, you've seen Downton Abbey, right? There's this great, great big inheritance for the Crawley family, and they just scrambled to make sure nothing happened to that great estate, right? They did all kinds of things, bent over, I mean, married cousins, and all right, weird stuff happens when you're trying to preserve an estate. We are trying to, to treat the inheritance with respect, preserve its well-being. That means then you start stewarding your life different. It means that you start stewarding his stuff different. It means that you steward moments different and relationships in your body and your mind and your heart because you're an heir and you're watching out for the well-being of the inheritance that's yours. It means that we relate to others different. 
We relate from a posture of abundance rather than competition with one another. Because guess what? If you're an heir of the Father, then you don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Because you're already loved and valued and accepted. If you're an heir of the Father, why should you hoard your stuff when He's so generous? If you're an heir of the Father, you can face suffering knowing He's not against you, He's with you in it. And He's just producing something far more weighty than temporary pain. And so Jesus summons us to live immersed, plunged, baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And next week we're going to talk about the Son and the week after the Spirit. But you can never talk any week about any one member of the Trinity without suddenly bringing to mind the other two. Because God's involved in our lives fully and Trinitarianly. Friends, live immersed this week as adopted children of the Father. To be adopted means to be immersed in His grace, immersed in the Spirit's constant connection to the Father and the Son's constant love and adoration for the Father that you're brought in as permanent members of the family. And so we're going to celebrate that with communion. The band's going to come up here and we're, we're going to celebrate with joy what God has provided. So I want to invite you to the tables in just a second to receive what's freely offered in the Gospel with gratitude. To come to the table and to commune with the Father, not on the basis of your works today, but on the basis of Christ the Son, through whom you become an adopted child of God. And in the grace and the power of the Spirit who drives the reality deep into our very being, we're going to receive the fellowship that's offered at the table of the triune God. The fellowship of sharing in His very own love for Father, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that you're brought into and that overflows through your life into the world. So I'm going to ask you to come and receive the elements and hold on to them. We're going to take them together as a family because we're adopted together as a family. That not only do you become a child, but you inherit brothers and sisters. And so we're going to take the bread and the cup that represents the body and blood of Jesus together in just a moment. Would you come and receive the elements this morning?